This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hey, this is Sonal, and on the episode of the Offscript podcast today, we're doing a bit of a thought experiment. Have you ever wondered about how the world will end, perhaps how humanity will end? We got in touch with Anders Sandberg. He is a futurist, an author, and a specialist on the subject. The Big Interview with Offscript. We are talking about this. It's the end of the world. Nice and cheery conversation. If it really is the end of the world, no more problems. Yeah, absolutely right. To, to a, discuss, to an, moan about. Unusual take. Yeah, Very but, it's, but it's, it's the perfect way to get rid of all your problems. It's to just end the world. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Nothing for us to moan about. I don't know. Vladimir's not listening to that. <laughs> Seriously. I just want to say, by the way, that this is a thought exercise. I was sitting the other day at my computer. I was yeah. eating some lunch and I was thinking, what can we talk about? And I was looking up ideas for Because You Asked. And I thought, hmm, I wonder how the world will end. Oof. Or how like scientists expect the world to end. See, my thoughts are, I wonder what's on the showbiz section. Of the Daily Mail. I wonder what the latest football gossip is. Sonal Rapani is thinking, hmm, the end of humanity, how will that happen? That's the difference between you and me. Yeah, Sonal. well, you know, I feel like because you asked is a slightly different, you know, you have to think a little hypothetical. Yes, you do. It's and interesting because I think that we as humanity will end surely before the earth ends, I'm assuming. I would think that's the likely scenario. And yeah. those, I, I agree with you, those are two different questions. So with our expert, we started with how humanity will end, but by the end, we'll also talk about how the world hypothetically could end. Yeah, right. So I was looking this up, I was reading an article, and I found it actually quite complicated to explain myself, and I thought, you know what, there's this expert who's quoted in this article, let's get him on the line and get him to explain it and give us some of his thoughts. Now, so I got in touch with Anders Sandberg. He is a futurist and an author. He's a research fellow at the Future of Humanity Institute at the oh University my. of and Oxford. Who took cocktail parties, I would imagine. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> yeah, no, what have you been up to? Just studying how the world's going to end, you... <laughs> He doesn't exclusively do catastrophe research. That is one aspect of something <laughs> that he does. That's part of his back catalogue. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so another thing that Natural caught my Natural disasters eye. is another. <laughs> he kind of looks at, like, future hypotheticals. So, for example, okay. on some forums, somebody had put out this hypothetical question of what would, the, what would happen to the Earth if suddenly all of the Earth was replaced with blueberries? Oh, yeah. Just kind of as you would buy them in the supermarket, not like jam packed together, but just kind of lightly packed together blueberries. Any specific reason? Could it be raspberries or is there a reason? I don't why know. It's... Somebody just put forward the thought of blueberries. So okay, Anders, right. you know, did a research paper to did talk a research through. research paper? Yeah. To talk through hypothetically what would happen. Wow. So my point is, is he does a lot of different types of thought experiments. Catastrophe research is just one of them. Okay. So on that note, I asked him based on his research, what in his opinion are the top three likeliest ways humanity, not the world, but as you pointed out the difference, humanity yeah. could end. So I think the top three risks right now are the good old nuclear war, which we quite often forget until uh, Russia and America starts rattling their sabers at each other, uh, biotechnological risks, and in the longer run, artificial intelligence. This might surprise a lot of people who would say, wait a minute, what about climate change? What about asteroid impacts and so on? But asteroid impacts, they are very rare. The kind of asteroid impact that killed off the dinosaurs uh, doesn't happen very often, maybe once every 100 million years. Climate change makes everything worse. It's a systemic risk that makes a lot of other risks worse. But in itself, it doesn't kill us. So 
I think the big threat or even the present uh, things like nuclear war or some emerging technologies that look like they are going to be very risky before we learn how to master them. Listen, Roy, that I don't could care. just be the greatest opening clip of an interview <laughs> we've ever heard on this show. Talk about getting straight to the point. Not where did Anders go to school, some of his background. Well, I got first got interested in it. You want the top three? I'll give you the top three. Here's how we're going to go. I don't, I don't care what you say. I'm a big fan of Anders. I'm a big fan Massive of his too. I'm a big of fan of his too. In fact, we're going to break down the those top three that he mentioned in a oh, little yeah. bit more detail. Oh, let's start with <laughs> let's start with nuclear war as a preeminent risk because it's not necessarily about the immediate impact, as even though that would be devastating in itself. It's more about the concept of a nuclear winter and what a full-out nuclear war would do to the Earth. So the problem with nuclear war um, is, as you say, not the direct horrendous devastation which certainly would cause uh, enormous uh, problems uh, for the survivors because you would have a broken infrastructure. You would have electromagnetic pulses wiping out the cloud and uh, hence essentially the basis for our economy. But you also have a problem that a burning city releases a lot of soot. And if it's a sufficiently big fire, this goes up into the stratosphere. We have seen with some big uh, volcanic eruptions that sometimes you get a lot of dust going up into the stratosphere, and there it remains for years. Down in the lower levels of atmosphere, rain tends to pick up dust and dirt, and it rains away somewhere in the world. But if it's up in the stratosphere, it can drift around, and it reflects sunlight back, so it makes the world much colder. Uh, And this is a real problem, because the amount of dust you could get from a full-scale nuclear war looks, according to the climate models, like it could uh, cause uh, a global devastation of agriculture for about 10 years. Essentially, it would be nearly impossible to do traditional farming anywhere for 10 years. And we don't have that much food reserves. So this looks like a way humanity could end up very badly, both wounded because of a crash of our infrastructure, but at the same time, no agriculture. Any angry parents out there that want to direct <laughs> their ire to any one of us, Sonor Rapani. Listen, as we've said, this is a thought exercise. Of course it is. Yeah. Intellectual exercise, yes. right? It's highly unlikely, of course, but in terms of the magnitude as well, how significant the magnitude of a nuclear war would have to be to have that kind of effect on our atmosphere, thereby sort of wiping out agricultural ability for 10 years. He said to leave that level of devastation, it's based on a full-blown nuclear war between, let's say, the current arsenal of Russia and the U.S. Again, highly unlikely Mm -hmm. scenarios. He said there are other smaller hypothetical conflicts that could cause a quote-unquote nuclear autumn, not a full-fledged nuclear winter, as what he was describing. So, you know, again, this is just a a hypothetical but implausible Yes, there's something gentle about the term autumn. You know, falling mm. leaves and kind of nuclear autumn. I don't really associate those two words together. No. Autumn is nice, lovely colours. So much winter, know. festive season. Yeah. No, nuclear winter. Oh, just sounds scary. Also, he mentioned biotechnological risk. And I said, Anders, I don't even know what that means. What are you talking about? And he said genetic and modified organisms are used really well in agriculture and other purposes that we need them to. But when you look at the fact that that technology means we have the ability to modify life, it also means you can modify pathogens. He's concerned that having this ability in the first place, having the knowledge and the ability to do so, leads to a plausible situation in which it could be misused 
for misanthropy or military purposes, he said. So it's a bit of a double-edged sword. On the one hand, we want to develop biotechnology for mostly beneficial purposes that it has. But Anders says that we have to manage the risks as well. During the Cold War, Russia literally made tons of smallpox virus, mostly because of bureaucratic reasons rather than military ones. Uh, But they had enormous stockpiles. But most uh, military forces don't really want to have a doomsday weapon. That's fairly useless. You want a weapon you can use against your enemy and win the conflict. But you can imagine Rouge Nation saying, okay, I'm not able to build a nuclear weapon, but at least I'm going to have a stockpile of something absolutely horrific and say that if anybody tries to depose my uh, tyranny, I'm going to release it. That's not implausible, but unfortunately, people do make mistakes. And if you have a stockpile of something dangerous, you might actually uh, release it accidentally. There are also people who might say that, yeah, I want uh, to change the world. Unfortunately, they're also insane or have very negative views. Then I think the majority of people are nice people with decent intentions, not always uh, the wisest intentions, but they are doing good. The problem is, of course, that somebody doing bad with biotechnology could theoretically do a lot of harm. But the good side of biotechnology is tremendous. Right now, we're dependent on an agricultural system that needs to work well, even if climate changes, even if water is scarce, even if crop pests show up. We can use biotechnology of various kinds to safeguard against that. We can use it in medicine. We're getting very good at responding to new medical threats. And of course, we want our own medicine to work. I do believe that we can get ways of enhancing our health and uh, slowing down our aging and doing many things to make our bodies and minds better thanks to biotechnology. There are also environmental uses. People are, for example, looking into ways of recycling plastic by breaking it down with bacteria. It turns out that you can modify bacteria to break down almost anything. And you could that way do a lot more recycling and chemical industry without needing high energy in the factories. So he said when it comes to biotechnology, we're just scratching the surface. He likened it to how people in the 50s would have felt about computers, just kind of at that nascent stage of developing them. But he said no one could have foreseen the idea of the Internet, that cat memes would have been such a thing, that we would having such conversation about new social social organizations. You couldn't have possibly preempted that in the 50s when you had such rudimentary, rudimentary technology that you were working with. And he kind of said biotechnology is the same. You know, it's something we're still at the cusp of and the way that it develops, he said, we could see a future in which biotechnology and the economy is completely intertwined. So, of course, as with anything, we need to have some safeguards and be thoughtful about how we progress into that future. Um, Now, let's talk about the third risk that he mentioned, uh, AI in the long term. So right now, the only way you can uh, get seriously harmed by AI is probably standing next to an industrial robot or maybe an autonomous car when they're uh, moving around. Right now, the risk uh, coming from AI is very small because AI is not controlling our environment that much. Still, we're dependent on various algorithms to handle our bank accounts and social media and uh, how society works. And sometimes when they malfunction, we see losses of efficiency, for example, in healthcare that literally kill people. But it's very indirect. It's not so much that we can blame the artificial intelligence itself for it. However, 
we are developing better and better artificial intelligence. There is a lot of push for making it better because it's so useful. Like biotechnology, this is a wonderful technology. If we can outsource boring or dangerous tasks to machines, we should totally do that. We should try to make systems that can be smart and have common sense. The problem is, of course, when these systems are smart, they are working very hard to solve the goals that we have programmed into them, or they have accidentally learned from the data we have fed them. So you can imagine uh, as they get become more powerful, they are going to shape our environment and not necessarily in the way we want it or not necessarily in ways that are good for people. And since they're going to be fairly intelligent, they're going to do it in very complicated ways that we might not even recognize as dangerous or long-term risky. So a simple scenario you can imagine is that there is advice AI that gives your company advice on things that will increase shareholder value. And let's assume that this is really good. It's really good at giving advice, but you don't have to obey it. It's just that if you don't obey it, you're not going to do as well. And you know your competitors are getting the same kind of software. And the advice is good, except, of course, that it also advises that you fire people who doesn't listen to the advice, because generally these people bring down the price of your company. So now you have people who tend to do what the AI suggests. It's also just maximizing shareholder value. It didn't do anything about the environment or ethics. So your company is actually becoming somewhat ruthless which is true for many of other companies. The companies who are not using this software are going to get outcompeted. Some worried politicians and intellectuals are going to be warning against this. But from the perspective of maximizing your value for a company, the advice the software gives you is, of course, to um, send lobbyists against these proposals to rein in the support. This way, you have a society that slowly drifts towards being run by software that ruthlessly maximizes profit for companies without necessarily making it nice to be inside the company or outside the company. And it's not because anybody wants this situation. We just lock ourselves into this pathway. That's the one for me. Mm. It's AI. It frightens the life it's of a bit like, so it's, it's like social media. If you're in media, you have to be on it whether you like it or not. Uh, you have to be involved in AI going forward if you're a big company, whether you like it or not, because your competitors will destroy you if you're not in AI. I thought exactly the same thing because he kind of paints this scenario. Now, of course, he said it's probably not going to be this specific scenario. I was just giving an example. But the risk, he said, is making AI so useful that we're not yeah. going to be able to resist using it. And that made me think exactly of smartphones. Our smartphones, I've been thinking about how I could get off my smartphone, but instantly I think, well... I need Google Maps. How am I going to be able to navigate? Um, okay, well, maybe I find a solution to that. Oh, well, I need my Al-Hassan app because yeah. sometimes I need to show evidence and they'll only accept this. It's almost like we as a society have created this technology that's so useful, but I can acknowledge it's made my life. I mean, worse is kind of too direct a statement, but it has it, taken my life in a certain way that I don't like. Yeah. It has made me a more distracted person. Um, it's made me focus on sort of time-wasting things that I don't want to do. And yet I kind of am locked in. Mm. And that's kind of what I felt he was saying about the AI is that we will, it will be so good and so useful that we'll be locked in, even if in the big picture, it's making us people and societies and organizations that we don't actually like. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think you guys have been enjoying this conversation with Anders. So. We had a whole aside on if AI is going to make us obsolete when it comes to work. We will ponder questions like that in the future. However, for now, let's stick with the end of the world world slash humanity. Okay. Uh, because when might this happen? Hold on to your hats. 
So I do think about timelines, but not in the normal end of the world sense. Uh, so in most cases, the risks we're talking about are fairly random. So it's not so much uh, you can say that by 2050, uh, I'm certain something will happen. Instead, what we're doing is uh, we can talk about that the probability of nuclear war looks like it's let's say, between 0.1% and 1% per year. Uh, I have various reasons to think that. And then you might say, well, if there nothing else changes, we should expect that after about a century or so, uh, you, you would end up having a nuclear war by sheer chance. There are some threats that do have a clock. Uh, so biotechnology, as I mentioned, is getting more powerful over time. So right now the threat is minor, but it's going to become bigger over time unless we do things that make the world safer. Then it's going to go down. But how much is all dependent on the politics we do, the technological innovations we have? The same thing is true for artificial intelligence. Right now, it's not particularly smart or particularly dangerous, but it's going to become increasingly risky in the next few decades. And I don't think if we if we don't figure out how to make it safe, I don't think we survive a lot of decades with very powerful, very dangerous AI. But then there are the other forms of uh, risk um, that are more predictable. Right now, we're in the middle of an ice age, except that it's on a break. The current interglacial, the period when, uh, when the world is not covered with a lot of snow and ice, has lasted for about 10,000 years and might last some more 10,000 years. But in the long run, unless we humans change climate and how an ice age works, we're going to see a return of an ice age. That's not the end of the world, but as a Scandinavian, of course, I'm, I'm not going to be able to live in Scandinavia because it's going to be under a mile of ice. Over even longer time spans, Earth is not going to remain habitable forever. There are various reasons why in about a billion years, and because of the sun becoming brighter, life is probably not going to function well on Earth. And in about 5 billion years, we can be pretty certain that the sun is going to become a red giant and really burn Earth to a cinder. So I'm working on some extremely long timescales, and I do not think uh, that the end of Earth or the sun might be the end of humanity. If we do play our game well, if we go to space long before that, we can survive. We can survive not just as long as we're stars for the next trillions of years, but I do think we can use artificial energy source to survive even beyond that. Right now, it looks to me like the final curtains are somewhere beyond 10 to the power of 36 years in the future where matter itself might become unstable and start de decaying because of proton decay. But that's not what we normally think about at the end of the world. We think about some kind of disaster or maybe a permanent decline of civilization. And we don't really have timelines. We only have probabilities. And then, of course, the urge to fix things so it doesn't happen. Yeah, so he went way into the future. I didn't yeah. realize that matter would become unstable altogether. So that was news to me. Climate change. This one surprised me because surely I thought this would feature higher in the list. And it is very important. So it's obviously a very big issue to deal with. He's not minimizing that at all. It's just not a direct answer to the question about the end of humanity. I think it's fairly likely that uh, a climate change world is going to be a worse world for us because we evolved to live in a rather different world. But there's still going to be parts of it that are habitable and people growing up in it, thinking that this is how the world is. And yes, they can see the pictures of the, how the world was in the past and they feel like that's weird. Uh, I do think that if we don't control climate change, we're probably going to end up with some regions of the world that you can't live in without air conditioning and other forms of protection, which might be doable if we have a sufficiently rich world. 
Or if we're very poor, we are not going to be able to afford it and we have to move to cooler places. And of course, there are many places right now in the world that are too cold to live in uh, nicely, but might actually become habitable. The real threat I see from climate change is that it stresses the international system. We have already seen that fluctuations in food prices caused various uh, political upheavals in uh, poor countries. Uh, And we can expect that if you have this force of climate making some forms of agriculture unsustainable, that might cause similar effects. Of course, you can plant other crops. This is again where biotechnology might be a way of ameliorating the impact. Uh, I think we are going to see various natural disasters. Um, We're going to see flooding. Again, if you have enough resources, this is totally possible to deal with. Uh, The Netherlands can just build higher flood walls. It's going to be very costly, but we can do it. The problem is, of course, poor countries can't do that. And I think this is what is likely to stress the international system, because some people are going to have a harder time adapting than others. And that's going to make them very angry or very desperate. And that causes conflict. Just as a final thought, really quickly, I did ask him if he watched Don't Look Up. And he said to me, no. He said his partner is a lawyer. And for the same reason that his partner doesn't like watching law dramas, it all hits a bit too close to home, especially that aspect, the apathy of people, that we can see what's coming, but nobody wants to see it. Nobody wants to deal with it. Nobody wants to focus on a solution for things because there's such a distraction with more meaningless sort of they'll topics loo- on the agenda. They'll move Love Island to the Arctic Circle. That's what they'll do. <laughs> well, exactly that. So much more to come from Anders in future episodes of Offscript, including AI with addictive personalities and potentially an Earth made entirely of blueberries. As you expect on Offscript, the weird and the wonderful. A massive thank you to Anders. More from him at a future date. The Offscript Podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please do go ahead and click subscribe. You can also check out our other podcasts, Time Capsule or The Big Interview. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. 